All right, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, so to introduce myself, uh, I'm Professor Blocky. I'm an assistant professor here in the computer science department. Um, you probably already know me as the guy that uh, introduces the speakers before, uh, before each uh, seminar, but today I'm, uh, I'm giving the talk. Uh, so my research interests really include uh, passwords, cryptography, data privacy. Um, today I'm going to tell you about uh, memory hard functions and their applications to uh, password hashing. All right, so let's uh, just motivate the problem. Uh, what is a password hash function? Um, so let's uh, think a little bit about what happens behind the scenes when you log into a website like Amazon.com or PlayStation.com. Um, so here I am uh, logging into PlayStation.com. I have my username, jblocky, um, and a password here, uh, 123456. Uh, now I promise you that's not my actual password if anyone is trying to log into PlayStation.com right now. Um, but for the example, let's say my password was 123456. Um, well, what does PlayStation.com do? Uh, they'll take uh, my username, uh, they'll pick a random value, uh, which is often called a salt value, and they're going to append this random value to my password. And then they'll take a cryptographic hash function, uh, something like SHA-1, SHA-2, SHA-3, and they're going to hash uh, my password with this salt value appended to it. And what they'll store on their server is just this hash value, this garbled string. So later on, if I try to authenticate, I'll send them my username, I'll send them a password guess, and they'll just regarble this password guess, check to see if it matches the hash value on file, and if it does, I authenticate. If it doesn't, uh, try again. Okay, um, so this sounds like a great solution. Uh, what can go wrong? Well, uh, oftentimes due to you know, programmer errors, uh, server misconfigurations, uh, failure to update your patches, hackers are able to break into the server and actually steal, um, steal all these hash values, right? So in this case, uh, you know, an attacker breaks in, he sees this file which has my username, my salt value, and the hash of my password. Once he has the hash of my password, he can check as many guesses as he wants offline. He no longer has to interact with PlayStation.com. He can continue trying guess after guess after guess, uh, trying to crack my password. So in particular, you know, maybe he thinks my password is password, so we'll hash password. Um, he'll append the salt value to, um, to that string and hash it, check to see if it matches. Um, you know, next popular password, 123456, he'll uh, append the salt value, hash it, and check to see if it matches. In this case, he's cracked my password. All right, so the only thing limiting an attacker in an offline attack is just the cost of computing this hash function. Um, so the attacker will um, start with a popular dictionary um, you know, of common user passwords, and it'll just you know, enumerate through every uh, password guess in this dictionary, compute the hash uh, each time, and just check to see if it matches. So the point here is that there's no locking the attacker out. Right? There's no limit. You can't say, you've tried three guesses, you've been wrong all three times, uh, you're locked out. Uh, the attacker here has this hash value, um, so he can continue guessing without uh, without getting locked out. All right, uh, and offline attacks are unfortunately a common problem. Uh, so password breaches at major companies have affected millions of users. Um, so here we have a wall of shame. We've got uh, you know, LinkedIn, Sony, RockU, uh, Adobe, Yahoo, Living Social. Um, and this is the wall of shame that just keeps growing and growing. Um, 
So you know, over time, I have to add more and more examples to this list, and uh, you can probably find some notable examples that, uh, that are not present here. Um, I didn't include Equifax up here because uh, it's not clear whether Equifax uh, actually involved passwords. So you know, this list is only password-related breaches, though the Equifax breach was uh, also a particularly notorious one. Um, and I should mention that uh, I'm going to have to update my slide again now uh, because it says millions. Uh, and if you saw the news story uh, this past week, uh, Yahoo just upgraded their estimate of how many uh, user accounts were, were hacked in their breach uh, from 1 billion to 3 billion. Um, so now uh, this slide should actually say billions of user accounts affected. All right, um, so offline attacks are not only a common problem, they're also a dangerous problem. Uh, so this uh, machine here, it's called the Antminer S9. It's one of the mining rigs that uh, people use to mine Bitcoin. Um, so to mine Bitcoin, you have to compute the SHA-256 hash function over and over and over and over again. Well, um, if you look at the specs for this machine, it says 14 TH per second. Uh, what does that mean? It means that this little machine is computing 14 trillion SHA-256 hashes per second. Um, now that's a pretty impressive number. And what makes this even more concerning is this machine is not particularly expensive. Uh, if you have 2,000 bucks sitting around right now, uh, you could go on Amazon and you could actually buy one of these machines. So um, the other piece of the threat is you know you have a machine that can compute SHA-256 uh, 14 trillion times per second and users are still picking fairly predictable passwords right so you know it's 2017 and the most common passwords are still you know password 123456 1234567 um, fairly predictable stuff this doesn't mean that every user picks uh, you know such a weak password but the entropy of user selected passwords is still low so one of the key challenges in password hashing is, can we actually increase costs for the attacker, right? If the attacker is able to try 14 trillion guesses per second, then he's going to just you know, demolish most, uh, most passwords and crack uh, you know, most, user, most user passwords in just a fraction of a second. Um, so really what we want to do is we want to increase the cost uh, to check each password guess, which means we somehow want to make this hash function more expensive for the attacker to compute. So how do we do that? Um, well, one attempt uh, that's actually been, uh, um, been tried, uh, and to uh, Yahoo's credit, uh, they actually started using bcrypt. Uh, so um, bcrypt, is, instead of you know, using the SHA-256 hash function or some other hash function, you'll take the hash function, you'll compute it once, and then you'll apply the hash function to that hash value. And you'll just iterate many times. Um, so for example, uh, PBKDF2 uh, is just iterating the SHA-256 hash function over and over and over again. And when LastPass was breached, uh, they were using PBKDF2 uh, with uh, over 100,000 SHA-256 iterations. Um, right, so just to check one password guess, uh, the attacker has to compute SHA-256 over 100,000 times. Um, right, uh, now, Unfortunately, this still may not be enough to defend against an attacker that has customized hardware, like this Antminer S9. 
So in particular, if the attacker builds you know, an application-specific integrated circuit whose job is just to crack the user's password, uh, then you know, we would estimate that this uh, ASIC would be able to try about one, uh, well, okay, I guess uh, 14, uh, 140 million password guesses per second. And if you, you know, amortize over hardware cost, energy cost, this would translate to about $1 per billion password guesses. Right, so that's still pretty cheap, right? The cost per guess is still marginal. All right, so here's the challenge, right? Uh, we have, on the one hand, uh, over time, uh, the cost of computing a hash function, let's say uh, SHA-256, is steadily decreasing as people develop customized chips to actually compute this function. On the other hand, uh, user patience is remaining fairly constant, right? Uh, you know, over time, uh, user patience is, is pretty steady, which means that you can't just you know, start increasing the number of hash iterations over time. Uh, one solution would be, you know, instead of 100,000 iterations, try, uh, you know, 100 million hash iterations. But, okay, now the problem is you're going to require the user to wait, you know, 10 to 100 seconds just to authenticate, right? The user types in his password, you have the computer uh, compute this uh, iterated hash function, and, you know, 10 seconds, a minute later, uh, it gets back to you, your password was correct, or, you know, hopefully you didn't make a typo, uh, and then it says your password is incorrect, and now you have to wait another minute uh, to check your second guess. Um, right, so the challenge here is that we're really constrained in the amount of time that we can take to hash a password. Right, users are not willing to wait for a minute or, um, or longer. Really, you know, realistically, you're talking about maybe half a second to a second of uh, time to perform key stretching before users are going to start to complain. Um, okay, so now our goal is to develop a moderately expensive hash function. And it should have the property that it's reasonably fast for the user to compute on standard hardware, let's say your personal computer. And it should also be expensive for the attacker to compute even if the attacker builds customized hardware, like an application-specific integrated circuit. Now these properties might, uh, might sound contradictory, and there is a tension, right? Uh, if it's fast to compute on your computer, well, certainly after the attacker builds customized hardware, um, the cost per guess for the attacker is not going to be any lower than the cost per guess for the legitimate user, right? After all, the attacker just gets to build customized hardware to, you know, to optimize this task. So how can we, you know, hope to achieve this goal? How can we hope to have a function that uh, is computable by the user in, let's say, under a second? And at the same time, it's economically prohibitive for the attacker to try millions or billions of guesses per, per user. Um, well, so this is where memory hard functions come into play, right? So the idea of a memory hard function is you want to design a function where computation costs are actually dominated by memory. So if you want to just compute, you know, SHA-256 uh, a million times, all you have to do if you're an attacker is build an application-specific integrated circuit. You know, your si size of the chip or the core that computes SHA-256 is going to be pretty tiny. And you just have to lock this chip up for, you know, a fraction of a second, and then you're, you're done computing this function. The idea of a memory-hard function is instead of forcing the attacker to just lock up a tiny chip, why not force the attacker to lock up 
an entire DRAM chip filled with, let's say, a gigabyte or more of memory. So the idea here is we want to force the attacker, if he wants to compute this function once, we want to force him to lock up, let's say, a gigabyte of memory uh, for the duration of computation. Um, right, so we want to force this attacker to lock up large amounts of memory, um, basically for an entire second or half second or how, however long we're performing this computation. Um, right, and I claim that this means that the function is still going to be expensive, even on customized hardware. Why is that? Well, two reasons. Uh, you can optimize uh, programs by building customized circuits. Uh, but really, the cost of memory on, a, you know, on, on an ASIC is roughly the same cost that you would pay to put uh, you know, that memory on your personal computer. Um, so the attacker is not really going to be able to improve latency um, or bandwidth or, um, or just the cost of, you know, the physical cost of uh, that DRAM chip. He can't reduce that cost by building customized hardware. Uh, that cost is, is constant and equitable across architectures. Um, okay, so we want this function to be um, memory-wise expensive. Uh, so how do we do that? Well, there's one candidate function called scrypt, uh, which basically you know, starts to fill memory, and then you access random points in memory and kind of uh, you know, garble it up a little bit uh, and make a pass over memory um, in a randomized fashion. Um, and, you know, scrypt actually does seem to be memory hard. Um, now, scrypt does have a downside on, on the other hand. Um, in particular, scrypt accesses memory in a data-dependent fashion. That means that if you, at, if you input, you know, the password 123456 and then just observe the pattern of memory accesses, that pattern is going to be different than the pattern that you would uh, get if your password had been password, right? So an attacker who can mount a side channel attack, um, let's say he's uh, sitting on, you know, he's executing a process that's sitting physically on the same machine. If he can just make some uh, cache timing measurements, he can actually learn a little bit of information about that memory access pattern of the hash function. And if he can learn a little bit of information about the memory access pattern, then potentially he's learning information about the password itself. Um, right, so scrypt uh, has some nice properties, but it also is vulnerable to side channel attacks. Um, so for most of the talk, I want to tell you about uh, an object called data independent memory hard functions. Uh, what does data independent mean? Data independent means that the memory access pattern is the same, regardless of in input. So whatever input you give to the, to the hash function, the memory access pattern is going to be the same. So in this case, you know, an attacker that's uh, you know, sitting there uh, measuring cache accesses is not going to be able to learn anything uh, in a provable sense about your password because that memory access pattern would have been the same whatever password you input. All right, so the point here is that now if we have a data independent memory hard function, this function is no longer vulnerable to side channel attacks. All right, so um, due to the recently completed password hashing competition, uh, which started in 2013 and uh, finished in, I believe, uh, summer of 2015, uh, we have lots of candidates for data-independent memory hard functions. Um, some of the prominent ones, uh, there's a function called Katena, 
which received uh, special recognition uh, at the password hashing competition. And there are a couple different variants of uh, the Katana hash function, uh, dragonfly, double butterfly. Um, you've also got Argon2, uh, which was the winner of the password hashing competition. So this is a particularly important memory hard function to understand. Um, and uh, originally, uh, when, the, um, when Argon2 was announced as winner, the designers of Argon2 um, were suggesting using the data independent mode for password hashing. Uh, that recommendation has changed, and we'll see why, uh, why a little bit later. Uh, but originally, when they, uh, when they won the competition, they were recommending use the data independent uh, mode of operation to hash passwords. This is so that you're not vulnerable to side channel attacks. Um, there's another newer proposal, uh, which was developed by some researchers at, uh, at Stanford um, called balloon hashing. Um, and uh, here, you know, the design is actually fairly similar to Argon2. Um, but they made a few tweaks that allowed them to actually prove some, uh, some nice security properties. Um, so it's a newer proposal, but you know, structurally pretty similar to, to Argon2. Okay, um, so these are some of the IMHF candidates. Uh, how does an IMH, IMHF work? Uh, well, an IMHF is defined by two things. Um, you have a hash function, H. Uh, think of you know SHA-256 or you know SHA-3, and then you have a directed acyclic graph G. Um, so a directed acyclic graph is just a graph. You have nodes, edges between nodes, but all of these edges are directed, um, right? So in particular, we can label these nodes you know one through n, and an edge goes from the earlier node to the later node, right? So if you have an edge between you know nodes 10 and node 100, the edge will go from node 10 to node 100. Um, okay, so uh, what does this directed acyclic graph uh, mean? Well, essentially, the directed acyclic graph encodes data dependencies, right? So each node here corresponds to an intermediate data label that's produced during computation, and edges basically specify that you know label four depends on data label two and data label three, right? So in particular, the first label is just the hash of the input, you know, the password and the salt. Uh, then an intermediate label is the hash of its parent labels, so, right? So to compute this label, I'm going to hash this value and this value and hash them together, and that gives me label three. Then to compute label four, I'm going to take these values, hash them together, and that gives me label four. All right, so that's uh, basically how a data-independent memory hard function works. Um, the final output then is just the label of the last node. So in this case, uh, right, we have four, a four-node graph. Uh, so the output is just the final label in this graph. Okay. So um, now we have this graph. Uh, we've defined this function. How do we evaluate this function? Uh, well, to evaluate this function, we can introduce a helpful abstraction called graph pebbling. Um, the idea of graph pebbling is as follows. Um, so you, know, you start off with no pebbles on the graph. And then at time i, you can place a new pebble on the graph uh, if and only if you had pebbles on all of the parents of that node in the previous step. Basically, what this is saying is right, uh, if you place a new pebble on the graph uh, at time i, then at the previous step, you better have had all of the dependent data labels already stored in memory. Otherwise, there's no way you could have computed this new label. Um, 
Right. And then the final constraint here just says that you have to finish. So you have to compute the final output label, which means that at the end of the time, at the end of this pebbling, you better put a la label on this last uh, on this last node because that's your output. So here's a, a simple example of uh, pebbling. Um, so we start with no pebbles on the graph. At time one, I can place a pebble on node one uh, because node one has no parents. So I can just uh, you know compute this label and store it in memory. And then at time two. Uh, since I already have a pebble on node 1, I can place now a pebble on node 2 um, because all of its parents were in memory. Now notice that I have uh, pebbles on the parents of node 3. Parents of node 3 are nodes 1 and 2, so I can now place a pebble on node 3. Um, at the same time, you know, I don't have to keep pebbles on the graph. Uh, so in, the, in this example, I uh, discarded pebbles on nodes 1 and 2. Um, why did I discard those pebbles? Well, it's to save space, right? Uh, to keep these data values in memory, um, you know, I need to allocate a certain amount of RAM. Um, if I can just discard these pebbles, that corresponds to freeing those corresponding memory, memory values, right? So in this case, I'm keeping memory usage low by discarding those, those pebbles. Then I'll place a pebble on node 4. Once I have pebbles on nodes 3 and 4, I can place a pebble on node 5. Um, and that's it. Uh, so that's how you evaluate, uh, evaluate this function. And here, placing a pebble just means you know, computing, the, computing the hash function. All right, so that's the pebbling game. Uh, now the question is, how do we actually measure the cost of computing a, computing a memory hard function? Um, and the first uh, measure that might come to mind is uh, something called space-time complexity. So here, you're looking at you know, how much space does this algorithm use um, and multiplying by the number of pebbling rounds. Right? So this term over here is you know, the maximum number of pebbles on the graph at any point in time. And then this term over here is just you know, the total amount of time that it takes to pebble the graph. So you know, this equation is telling you how much space do you need to allocate uh, in the worst case uh, and uh, multiply that by the total number of steps and that gives you space-time complexity. Um, so uh, space-time complexity is a nice measure of uh, complexity, um, and you know there's a rich theory underlying this uh, this measurement. But uh, I claim that this is not the right measure for password hashing. Why do I claim that? Well, uh, the problem is with amortization, right? Uh, so for a parallel attacker, uh, space-time complexity can actually scale badly in the number of evaluations of the function. Here's a simple example. Um, right, let's suppose that uh, computing, let's suppose that this blue area plots you know, number of pebbles on the graph over time. Right, so initially as I'm pebbling this graph, I have to use a lot of pebbles. And then after a little bit of time passes, um, I can discard most of these pebbles from memory, but then I have to keep, you know, uh, keep pebbling this graph until I reach the end node for a long, for a long time, right? Uh, so in this case, uh, the space-time complexity would just be the area or this bounding rectangle around uh, around this blue curve, right? So you'll notice that this uh, um, area around the blue curve in this case is much larger than the area under the blue curve. Why is that a problem? Well, the attacker doesn't just want to compute this function once. The attacker wants to compute this function hundreds, thousands of times. So what happens if instead of you know, 
just doing this uh, you know, one time and then repeating, what happens if the attacker starts computing this uh, function on the first input, and then as soon as you drop to a low space state, you start computing the second instance of this function. Then you wait till you drop to a low space state again, and then you start computing the third instance of this function. In this case, uh, you know, the area around, uh, around this uh, space is increased, but just a tiny bit, right? It's basically the same, uh, same area to bound, uh, bound all these curves, right? Which means that, uh, you know, in this case, the cost of computing this function once is roughly equal to the cost of computing this function uh, three times in the example. Right, so in this case, the attacker managed to do three times the amount of work, check uh, three password guesses, but the attacker's costs didn't really increase at all. Um, so this is not a particularly good property for a password hash function to have. And in particular, if all we're doing is trying to measure space-time complexity, uh, you know, we can't guarantee that uh, the attacker won't be able to amortize his costs. Um, and in general, um, Alwyn and Serbanenko pointed out that there exists, uh, you know, functions uh, where, uh, right, the amortized cost of computing this function is uh, square root n times uh, smaller than the cost of computing it once, right? So if you compute this function square root n times and then amortize, uh, basically you're still paying uh, the same, same total costs that you would pay to compute this, fu this function once. Um, Right, so this was just kind of a theoretical example, um, but it does illustrate that there might be a concern if, you know, if we're using space-time complexity to measure uh, the effectiveness of our password hashing algorithm, there might be uh, there might be problems later later on down the line. Um, so, uh, right to to overcome these problems, uh, Alwyn and Serbanenko introduced a separate measure called cumulative complexity. And basically, the cumulative cost of pebbling a graph G is just uh, you know, the area under this curve. Right? So if you have a pebbling strategy, instead of you know, taking the area of this bounding rectangle, just take the area under this curve. Um, right? So instead of, uh, yeah, instead of bounding, bounding, you just take the, take the area. Or you can think of this as you know, the integral of space usage over time. OK, so why is this, uh, why is this a better measure? Well, um, for, one, for one thing, uh, you know, guessing two passwords now actually doubles the attacker's cost, right? So if we're measuring uh, the cumulative cost of uh, pebbling this graph, if we want to pebble two copies of this graph, uh, then that's twice the cost of pebbling a single copy, um, right? So actually, we do get a nice amortization property, right? The cost of checking 1,000 password guesses is going to be 1,000 times the cost of computing one guess, which is exactly what we, what we want. Uh, okay, so back to our example. Here was our pebbling, uh, right? If I was computing space-time complexity, I would take maximum space usage multiplied by time. So in this case, we have five steps. Maximum space usage is two. So in this case, you know, the space-time complexity would be 10. But the cumulative cost here would just be seven. So we're just going to sum up, you know, all of these rounds. So we have one pebble plus two pebbles on the second round plus one pebble on the third round plus two pebbles on the fourth round. And if we just add it up, we'll get, uh, get seven. Um, so in general, you know, the cumulative cost of pebbling a graph is lower than the space-time cost of pebbling a graph. So what we want is actually, we want to design a graph where the cumulative cost of pebbling this graph is high. Not just the space-time 
cost. We want to make sure that the cumulative cost of pebbling this graph is high. Okay? Um, so just to reiterate, uh, what are our goals now? Um, we want to find a graph G uh, on n nodes uh, such that this graph has constant n degree. Um, the reason I ask for constant n degree is just for practical reasons, right? To actually place a pebble corresponds to you know, computing the hash of you know, dependent data values. If uh, you know, the number of dependent data values is too large, then really that's not constant time to place a new pebble on the graph. Um, so I'm going to require that this graph has constant n degree. Um, just so each you know, new pebble that I place on the graph really corresponds to one, uh, one unit of computation in the real world. Um, and then I also want to make sure that uh, you know, the cumulative cost of pebbling this graph G is uh, at least you know, n squared divided by tau for some value tau that hopefully is as small as possible. Now why do I want to make sure that cumulative cost is high? Um, well, here note that n denotes running time. Uh, users are, are impatient, right? So we're kind of constrained. n has to be small enough that you can finish hashing in one second, half a second. And we also want to make sure that the attacker's costs are as high as possible, right? So we want the cumulative cost to be as large as possible. So in particular, we're going to require that cumulative cost is at least you know, n squared divided by tau hopefully for some small, uh, small term tau. Okay, um, so now I guess the key point, uh, there's this combinatorial property called depth robustness, and you can show that it's both necessary and sufficient to build a secure data independent memory heart function. All right, uh, so let me tell you what, uh, what depth robustness is. Um, Right, so you have a directed acyclic graph, um, and we'll say that it's ED reducible if you can find a subset of E nodes such that deleting these nodes from the graph uh, reduces the length of the longest path to be at most D. Now, okay, that's a mouthful, uh, but let me show you a quick example of a 1, 2 reducible graph. So 1, 2 reducible means that I should be able to delete one node and that the longest path uh, remaining in the graph should be two. All right, so can anyone uh, tell me here uh, how, to, how to show this graph is uh, one, two reducible? So I have to find one node to delete uh, to reduce the depth of this graph to two. What? Okay, yeah, so exactly. If I delete node three, um, then I've gotten rid of all these edges that are incident to three. So now there's two paths remaining in the graph. There's the path from one, node one to node two, and the path from node four to no node four to node five. Um, so there's two paths left in the graph, but each of these paths has length at most two. So in this case, we say that the graph is one, two reducible. Now, if a graph is not reducible, uh, we say that it's depth robust. Depth robust means that for all you know, subsets of size E, uh, deleting E nodes uh, is going to leave a path of length D remaining in this, in this graph. Right, uh, so on the one hand, we have uh, reducibility, and if it's not reducible, we'll say that it's depth robust. Okay, uh, so why do we care about this strange combinatorial property? Um, 
Well, it turns out that if your graph is ED reducible, uh, then there's an attack, right? There's a pebbling strategy that uh, has low cumulative cost. Um, in particular, if your graph is ED reducible, uh, then there's a pebbling strategy with this cost. So E times N plus, then there's this weird, uh, you know, square root of N cubed times D term here. Um, I'm not going to go into details where those particular terms came from right now. Um, but intuitively, why does it matter that the graph is ED reducible? Um, well, if the graph is ED reducible, that means there's a small set of data values that you can store that compress the graph, right? So if you just store, you have a small subset of nodes, and if you just store the corresponding data labels, then any remaining path in this graph must be short, which means that any data label that you don't have stored in memory, well, it's not stored in memory, but at least you can recover that data value fairly quickly, right? Because there's no long path in that graph and a path corresponds to a chain of data dependencies, right? So if you can find a smaller set of nodes to delete, uh, which really reduces the depth of this graph, uh, then that gives the attacker a way to, to actually attack, right? He can store these values in memory and discard other values from memory um, to save space, but later when he needs to recover those values, there's a very efficient way for him to recover any discarded, any discarded data values. Um, so one, uh, here, one thing to note is that if E and D are smaller than N, uh, then in particular, this means that the cost is substantially smaller than N squared, right? So we want to have costs uh, that scale with N squared. Uh, but if E and D are both smaller than N, uh, then this actually gives us an attack uh, with, uh, yeah, with costs that's substantially smaller than N squared. Okay, so now, uh, now for an attacker, um, the natural question to ask is, okay, well, depth robustness is necessary to have a secure data independent memory hard function. So we have all these candidate memory hard functions. Uh, are they actually based on depth robust graphs? So we started to look at the question and the answer is a resounding no. Um, these graphs are not uh, depth robust. Um, so in particular, uh, we found that Catena is basically E, N over E reducible for any value E that you pick. Um, now, if you take a chain, um, you know, if your graph is just a chain with a link from node one to node two to node three, um, et cetera, and no other edges, you know, this graph is E, N over E reducible. Um, so this is basically as reducible as you can possibly get, uh, you know, in terms of depth robustness, it doesn't get any worse than, worse than this. And that gives us an attack with complexity n to the 1.62. Um, again, don't worry about the particular exponent, uh, but the fact is that this graph is reducible, and because it's reducible, you can get more efficient pebbling attacks. Um, so balloon hashing and uh, an older version of argon 2i are um, e, and then we have n squared over e squared uh, reducible. Um, okay, so now that looks a little, might little, look a little bit confusing, but here if we plug in, let's say E is uh, um, n to the 3 fourths, then that means that E is n to the 3 fourths and D is n to the 3 fourths. Um, so in this case, E and D are both substantially smaller than n, and once again, we get uh, significant attacks. And you know, if you optimize these attacks, basically what you get is uh, 
um, cumulative cost at most n to the 1.71. Um, so again, the target here is n squared, um, and we're getting something substantially lower than n squared. Um, now, the latest version of Argon2i is actually a little bit better. Um, so it's uh, now n cubed over e cubed, uh, you know, e, n cubed over e cubed uh, reducible, which is a little bit better than, you know, Argon2i uh, earlier version. Um, so in particular, now uh, we still get an attack. You know, it's not quite as good, but it's still substantially better than, uh, you know, than an attack that requires, that has cost n squared. Um, so, in every case that we've looked at, uh, the resounding answer is no. These graphs are not depth robust, um, and because they're not depth robust, we can actually get amortized attacks, uh, which would redu reduce the attacker's cost significantly. Um, yeah, there's other IMHF candidates, uh, and I'm not going to introduce them, but uh, similar results hold for all these other proposals. Um, so, yeah, in particular, Argon2 uh, was the winner of the password hashing competition, and Argon2i is the variant that the developers recommended using for password hashing. I should mention that uh, this attack uh, only is on Argon2i, the data independent mode, uh, but, uh, right, the data independent mode is the version they recommended because it's uh, not vulnerable to these side channel attacks. Okay, um, so that's the bad news. Uh, let me tell you about some of the good news. Um, so the good news is if you're trying to design a secure uh, data independent memory hard function, it's actually sufficient to start with a depth robust graph. And once you have a depth robust graph, uh, you immediately get a construction of a secure data independent memory hard function. So in particular, um, if your graph is ED depth robust, then the cumulative cost to pebble this graph is at at least e times d. Uh, now, the implication uh, immediately is there exists uh, graphs. Uh, this goes back to work of combinatorialists like uh, Paul Erdos and Semaretti back in the 1970s. So there actually exists graphs that are ed depth robust with e equals n over log n and d equals n. Um, so in this case, uh, Right, you get uh, a construction uh, with uh, cumulative cost at least n squared over log n, um, which is uh, still not quite n squared, uh, but fortunately it's, uh, um, it's a lot better than you know, n to the 1.75, or I think it was n, point, n to the 1.77 for argon2i. Um, so you know, this, is, uh, this is nice, it's getting us pretty close to that, uh, to that ideal goal. Um, and there was another theoretical result uh, before this, which got uh, n squared over, you know, log to the 10 uh, times n. Uh, but, uh, you know, this was a theoretical result. And, you know, if you actually calculate log to the power 10 n for practical values of n, it turns out that log to the power 10 of n is bigger than n squared. Um, you know, so for a theoretician, uh, they're looking at this and saying, well, you know, this term grows much faster than the, this term. But for a practitioner, uh, you know, log to the 10 uh, actually grows pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, okay, so I guess a little bit uh, um, more bad news. It turns out this is actually the best you can hope for. Um, 
right? So you can't actually do better than n squared over log n if you want your graph to have constant n degree. Um, so it turns out that there's a matching attack that shows that any, uh, any constant n degree graph uh, you know, has commutative costs at most uh, um, n squared. I guess there's a log log n factor, uh, but uh, log log n over log n. So basically, you know, up to small you know, log log n factors, uh, this, is, this is tight. Um, okay, so now something uh, you might have noticed on the slide. Uh, the implication here is that there exists a constant in degree graph, um, right? So this was, uh, you know, this result was appeared in a Eurocrypt paper, um, and it's an existential result. It means that there exists, you know, a constant in degree graph with uh, with this security property, but it doesn't mean that we actually have, you know, a practical instantiation that we can can use. Um, after all, you know, the construction is based on, uh, you know, 1970s work of Erdos, Graham, and Samaretti. It turns out that, uh, you know, these guys weren't particularly concerned about, uh, you know, the practical ramifications of, uh, of this graph. They were just interested in the combinatorics, uh, right? So all this is saying is that there exists a constant in-degree graph with this property, but it doesn't say that there's anything that we can actually use in practice. Um, so a little bit more good news. Uh, there's an upcoming uh, CCS paper uh, where we actually show um, that not only does there exist a constant in-degree graph, uh, we actually give a practical construction of a constant in-degree graph, which is you know, n over log n and depth robust. Um, so this is maximally depth robust. This is you know, the best you can hope for. And the cumulative cost is at least uh, n squared over log n, which is, again, the best you can hope for. So what do I mean by practical? Um, well, what I mean by practical is that you can actually tweak the argon 2i source code uh, to use the edge distribution from this new graph. Um, and if you actually make these modifications uh, and just evaluate performance empirically, there's no adverse effect, right? It runs in exactly the same amount of time. It's actually marginally faster, um, but that, you know, very marginally faster. Um, so, uh, Basically, you get the, the same performance if you, if you make, the, make these changes. Um, so you know, now we've gone from just an existential result to an actual concrete uh, result that you can implement. Um, now I should mention one of the key challenges that remains is the constants that go into this uh, lower bound are not particularly well understood. Um, so you know, a practitioner might still complain that, uh, you know, you have this lower bound, but the best constants you can prove are, um, are not that great. And uh, uh, I'll, be, you know, I'll be honest about that. I'm not going to claim that they're, they're great constants. You know, these are small constants here that we're able to, to prove it for. On the other hand, uh, you can conduct uh, you know, an empirical security analysis. So empirical security analysis, I mean, just take the best known attacks on uh, data independent memory hard functions and actually run them. So you know, for a concrete uh, memory hardness parameter, um, so here you know, when n is uh, 2 to the 20, uh, that corresponds to about a gigabyte of memory. So you're looking at a um, data-independent memory hard function that fills a gigabyte of memory um, and takes roughly uh, one second to, to finish. In this case, uh, you can see that we're getting attacks of quality you know, um, 8 or, or higher against uh, um, argon, argon 2i, 
Uh, but the best attacks that we can find against uh, this new depth robust construction have quality around three. Um, and this even holds up to you know, 16 gigabytes of memory. So the best known attacks still have quality three, which means that you know, the attacker's costs uh, are only you know, three times smaller than the costs of the honest party. Um, whereas here uh, for Argon 2IB, uh, you know, there's an attack with quality, uh, I think this is like 13 or something like that. Uh, right? So that means that uh, the attacker's costs are going to be 13 smaller, times smaller than the cost of the honest party. Um, Right, so um, in this case, uh, you know, this is the best we can do. You know, the attacker is going to get some advantage because he's parallel and he's running on an ASIC. Uh, but you know, in practice, it seems like we can reduce this advantage from something like 13 to, uh, to something like 3. Um, so this graph shows that you know, not only are these schemes theoretically more secure, they also seem to be more secure in practice, um, which is nice. So it's not just... Uh, you know, it's just not just an asymptotic result. Uh, you know, the theory actually does uh, um, does seem to correspond to to reality. Um, so I should point out here that uh, you know, as we go down here, this is more secure. So on the uh, y-axis here, we have attack quality, which is uh, just the ratio, right? So this is the attacker's amortized cost divided by the cost of the honest party, right? So um, higher attack quality means that the attacker's uh, costs are um, substantially, or sorry, it's the inverse. It's honest, cost of the honest party divided by uh, amortized cost of the attacker. So higher attack quality means that, uh, means that the attacker's costs are smaller and smaller. Okay. Um, so let me, uh, let me step back and I want to tell you about, uh, um, you know, some of the newer results in uh, memory hard functions. So I mentioned uh, the difference between data independent versus data dependent memory hard functions. Um, and I mentioned that you know, Script was a uh, data dependent memory hard function. Um, so uh, we've seen that uh, you know, the advantage for data independent memory hard functions is that there's no side channel attacks. The disadvantage, of course, is that uh, the cumulative cost can be at most n squared over log n. Um, now, data-dependent memory hard functions have the disadvantage that they're potentially vulnerable to side channel attacks, um, but do they have any advantages? Um, and the answer is yes. Uh, so this was proved at uh, Eurocrypt uh, 2017. It turns out that uh, Scrypt actually has cumulative memory complexity scaling with n squared. So if you run in time n, you know, the attacker has to keep n units of memory allocated uh, for um, n units of time. There's just no way around it. Now, the weakness of Scrypt uh, is that it's vulnerable to side channel attacks. So if there is a side channel attack, then the cumulative cost of checking each password guess drops dramatically. So you go from cost n squared down all the way down to cost n. And that's not such a great, uh, um, great situation. Um, so Argon2, in response to some of these uh, new attacks, has, they've developed a hybrid mode. Um, so basically the idea is you're going to run uh, data independent mode for n over two steps, and then you're going to switch to data dependent mode um, for the remaining n over two steps. Um, and the idea here is if there's a side channel attack, uh, you can reduce costs, but only somewhat, uh, right? So here, if there's a side channel attack, costs reduce, but you know, only to you know, end of the 1.767, which is 
a lot better than, uh, than S-crypt, right? Uh, S-crypt costs reduced dramatically all the way down to N. Um, so this is, uh, you know, this is nice. Uh, it kind of gives you the best of both worlds. And it appears that, uh, you know, without a side channel attack that the cost is still N squared. Um, so I would actually propose instead of, you know, argon2id, um, use argon2id but replace the graph, graph structure with this depth robust construction. Um, and in this case, uh, you're going to run in data independent mode for n over two steps as before. If there's a side channel attack, now we have the property that cost only reduced to n squared over log n. So there's a little bit of a reduction in cost, but it's not substantial. Um, so this is what I would actually recommend. Um, there is an implementation of it uh, um, on GitHub. Oh, I, I guess I didn't throw the link on here, but it's uh, um, practical. I think it's practical graphs. Uh, um, if you search for it on GitHub, you should be able to find uh, modified argon2i source code. And I would again recommend basically running argon2id, but with uh, you know with this new depth robust uh, um, modification. All right. So in summary, uh, um, right, you have lots of different options for password hashing. Uh, one option is just to use you know something like SHA1, SHA2, SHA3. Um, that's definitely a bad idea. Um, it's just the cost of computing this function is just too cheap for an attacker. Then you have constructions that are based on hash iteration, like bcrypt, password-based key derivation two. Um, I would argue that these functions are no longer sufficient uh, for password hashing. Um, so they still seem to be deployed uh, commonly in, you know, in, in real life, uh, but I would make the case that these hash functions are no longer sufficient to actually protect passwords. Um, so argon2i, um, despite attacks, it's still an improvement over bcrypt and password-based key derivation function too, uh, but it still does have its flaws. Um, argon2id is currently the mode of operation that uh, the argon designers are recommending. Um, and uh, right, uh, so if there's no side channel attacks, uh, then it resists all known attacks uh, and it seems to have cumulative memory cost n squared. Um, and side channel attacks reduce the security, but only a little bit. And finally, um, you know, what I would recommend is using their construction, but replace uh, the argon2i part with a depth robust graph. All right, uh, and memory hard functions are an active research area. Um, you know, something I'm working on uh, quite actively at the moment. If you are interested in, you know, learning more, uh, come talk to me. Uh, if you want to get involved in, in research in this area, um, always happy to chat. All right, uh, so with that, uh, thanks for listening, and I can take any questions. Yeah. Is it only applicable to ASIC chips or even FPGAs? Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, the technique is meant to design, to, to defend against, uh, you know, an attacker with an FPGA or an ASIC. I was using ASICs as an example, um, but yeah, um, an attacker might use an FPGA and uh, memory hard functions are also a, a good defense against uh, any, really any architecture, whether it's GPUs, FPGAs, uh, ASICs. On, um, on the amortization and, the, and doing parallel processing, was there, I mean, you showed the graph, but um, as a practitioner, yeah. Um, 
would you say that the some of the things that are used for like uh, Bitcoin mining, some of the ASIC that you showed, or mm -hmm. um, is it how realistic is the attack on some of the the hash algorithms that won for for the past hashing uh, competition? Like, how realistic is it for you know what what type of attacker is is it within their reach? You said, yeah, would you say um, like currently, and then yeah. I know you're looking into the future, yeah. but no, that's a that's an excellent question. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the answer is that ultimately no one's actually, uh, you know, built an ASIC with, uh, with this attack, um, right? So there's no ASIC implementing the attack, um, at least not that I know of. Um, now, with that being said, uh, there are a couple challenges uh, that you would have to deal with before you built an ASIC. One is uh, just the bandwidth overhead on the, on the chip, um, right? So... We tried when we simulated the attacks. We tried to actually estimate, uh, you know, how much bandwidth uh, would would be required to to run this attack, you know, under different uh, parameters. And we generally found that the attack was still uh, successful, even if you constrain bandwidth. Uh, um, now, uh, you know, to do that, uh, do those calculations, we were just looking at, you know, a couple different chips and pulling the estimated bandwidth off them. Uh, you know, there's plenty of work to be done to actually, you know, look at the economic cost of implementing these attacks. And, uh, you know, I won't claim that that's, uh, that that's resolved. I can only tell you that there are groups that are looking into it uh, at UCSB and at MIT. Um, but I don't, I don't know the, the outcome of all their analysis yet. All right. Thanks. <laughs>